In this episode, I'm going to share five overlooked blood tests that could enhance your health and more importantly, enhance your life. Welcome to Executive Health and Life. I'm your host, Julian Hayes II, back at it again. And today we're going to talk about lab testing and not just any type of lab testing, but overlooked tests. Many of these uh, you perhaps may have not run before. And some of these, maybe it's just been a while since you have checked these. And some of these are actually part of a routine checkup, but they may not be getting the attention that they deserve. And at first, when I decided on crafting this episode and, and, and getting the notes and everything organized for this, I was going to start with just some standard tests. And maybe I will do a comprehensive episode uh, one day in the future, which actually I probably will. But I wanted to do this because I, I think it's it's good sometimes to kind of just jump in the middle of things. And so a CBC, a complete blood count test, a uh, CMP, which is a uh, com comprehensive metabolic panel, and a lipid panel test are typically always ordered. So I'm going to exclude those from today's episode. But before I even dive into the first overlooked test, the first overlooked marker. Just why is regular lab testing beneficial? Uh, you know, I think that annual blood work is good, but I actually think you should do it more. I, I think at least quarterly, especially if you're really into this optimization space uh, like I am. You know, I encourage clients that I consult with and everything too. Uh, we do this very frequently, and um, but that's because I order it and, and command it. So that's a whole different thing. But First and foremost, lab testing is going to give you a solid starting point in terms of where you stand. You have a baseline, and this baseline you can build upon and improve upon. You know, it's hard to know exactly what's going on inside your body without looking under the hood. And that's what these lab testing are. There's a lot of health situations out there that can go without any symptoms showing for years before they manifest and become recognizable. You know, I think of something like a glycan age test and, you know, the, depending on how those come back, some of those things won't even show up for seven years. And now you have a seven year buffer. And I think that's, that's, that's the future of health and medicine, in my opinion. Now, you know, as a busy business executive, a leader, entrepreneur, um, or even just someone that's rising the ranks of corporate right now, you have numerous responsibilities and being proactive with your health is essential. It's a non-negotiable, not just for yourself, but there's people depending on you. Some of, some of the listeners out there, I'm sure you guys, you have families or, or you're getting ready to start some and you mentor young men and young women. The point being that there is, there's people that are depending on you. And so you have a responsibility to show up as your best self. So your mood also, your sex drive, your performance, your cognitive and your executive functioning skills, your physique, your overall energy levels, these are all intimately connected with your blood work. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the five tests, starting with the very first one. And it is none other than vitamin D. This might be a surprise, but it'll make sense as I further expand upon this. And so when I say vitamin D, I am talking about the active form of vitamin D. This is the 
and in, I'm talking about, sorry, the active form of vitamin D, which is to 125, in combination with the inactive form, the 25-hydroxy. So people refer to vitamin D as this vitamin, but it's actually a steroid hormone that is obtained through sun exposure. And it's also obtained through various food sources and supplementation. Common types of vitamin D that you would see and that you would be vitamin D2 and vitamin D3. And a lot of times, if you go to the doctor, I believe they'll give you, a, if you're low on the labs, they'll give you D2. And But compared to D2, vitamin D3 is actually 87% more effective and is the preferred form for addressing insufficient levels of vitamin D. Now, many tissues and cells in the body have vitamin D receptors. And an estimated 85% of the population is thought to be vitamin D deficient. That's crazy. Vitamin D deficient, 85%. And, you know, this is concerning because vitamin D, the active form, is responsible for regulating over 1,000 genes in the human genome. Now, I believe there's around 30,000 genes in our body, so that equates to around 3,000 genes right there. That's crazy. And just as a, a side note here, and I, I did this interview a long time ago with a gentleman when we were talking about COVID-19 and vitamin D and did how at a certain threshold, which vitamin D, that was kind of a predictor of the severity that you were going to deal with COVID-19, which was, and now there's more research behind that now, but at the time it was still pretty new, but still it was a very fascinating thing with that. And of course, vitamin D plays a big part in your immune system. Now, vitamin D is also playing an integral role when it comes to calcium homeostasis and the maintenance of healthy bone. Now, vitamin D stimulates the absorption of calcium at the level of your intestines and may also serve to increase the calcium and phosphate resorption at your kidneys levels. However, you mentioned, I mentioned that there's a um, deficiency with vitamin D. And so deficiency of vitamin D leads to the mobilization of calcium from bone, which can then lead to things such as osteoporosis and osteomalacia in more severe cases. So just a quick overview of vitamin D real quick, because it's a, oh man, vitamin D is so important and it's cheap. It's inexpensive for most people out there to get some, get some more sun. Now you, you might have to be like me and supplement, but for most people just getting outside, getting some sun and can really do wonders with your health. And so it's a, it's a big rock. You know how some things where they tell you to knock out the big rocks first. Vitamin D is definitely in that category. So as a quick recap real quick, before we dive further into this vitamin D, number one is the bone health, increasing, helping to increase calcium and strengthen bone. Two is the potential prevention of diabetes and, and at least helping with blood sugar. And why is because vitamin D is going to decrease the risk of both type one and type two. Heart health, studies have shown that vitamin D deficiency as a risk factor for congestive heart failure and heart attacks. A mood regulator, vitamin D is also believed to reduce or even prevent depression. Muscle growth, vitamin D has been shown to aid in muscle growth and retention in both adults and the elderly. And some foods, which I didn't mention earlier, now that that comes to mind, is fatty fish, such as mackerel and salmon, 
probably sardines as well. You could throw in there anchovies as well. I'm not too big of an anchovies guy, if I must say. Fish and fish and cod liver oils as well are some of the natural dietary sources of vitamin D. Now, let me tell you, as a guy who eats mackerel pretty frequently throughout the week, salmon a couple times, and um, also um, sardines, that is still not enough to get adequate levels of vitamin D, at least my definition of adequate levels of vitamin D. So going just the route of food, that's going to be very difficult for the majority of people out there. Now, the next thing, you might just be wondering, okay, Julian, why are you talking about vitamin D? And why is it mentioned as one of the overlooked blood tests? What's so overlooked? Because after all, you probably have heard of vitamin D. Well, that's because the active form, next time if you go to just your, to your doctor, most likely, the active form is not included on a lot of those standardized tests. The 25-hydroxy vitamin D test is the most accurate way to measure how much vitamin D is in your body. So there's an active and there's an inactive form of vitamin D. I needed a little tea break here if you're watching this on YouTube. Now, the active form is the one that supports the body. But when you're testing vitamin D levels, and most blood analysis only look at the inactive form, and the inactive form tends to correlate well with the active form. But in some rare cases, some individuals such as myself have genetics that correspond with higher levels of the active form, which is not going to be reflected in the typical vitamin D testing. So from a genetic standpoint, we all have varying levels of the ability to process vitamin D, which means that there is going to be a difference in the amount needed to maintain optimal vitamin D levels. So you probably hear though, you know, I mentioned the sun earlier, that you can get all your vitamin D from the sun. Well, depending on your geography, the season, and your genotype, you can have a decreased ability to convert sunlight to vitamin D. I'm one of those people. So this is why the active form in combination with the inactive form is helpful to finding and reaching optimal levels. Now, as for what are optimal levels, well, there's a lot of different research out there. And then there's people who uh, who kind of veer off that. So the normal range of the 25-hydroxy vitamin D is measured in nanograms per milliliter. Many experts will recommend a level between 20 to 40 nanograms per milliliter. That is absurdly low, in my opinion, and in a lot of my peers' opinions as well with, with their patients and clients, is that's very low. That is very low. You have other people that recommend between 30 and 50 nanograms per milliliter. And 100 nanograms per milliliter is usually the tops where anything above is labeled as excess. Now, for myself and the reading that I've done and the consensus that I've formed and also kind of just uh, the experience over the, the, last, the last few years, I think 50 nanograms per milliliter should be the absolute baseline. I've seen the optimal range for health and disease prevention. I've seen that actually raised to around 60 nanograms per milliliter to 80 nanograms per milliliter with higher levels being recommended for certain conditions. So 
the takeaway here, I would just say, is anything above, you got to at least be above 50. I say that's the, that's the floor. And then you can experiment and see how you feel going above that. Uh, you know, when it comes to vitamin D, you, you don't want to be average. You don't want to be normal in these ranges. You you want to be concerned with what's optimal, what's actually enhancing me to perform in all facets of life. You know, so, so with vitamin D supplementation, this is the last part of this. It must be balanced. And it must be balanced with other nutrients. Namely K2. And you want to do this because you want to avoid um, complications that are associated with excessive calcification in your arteries. And um, also, this magnesium is the last piece here that that is going to have a nice synergy together with these is vitamin D, K2, and then an appropriate magnesium intake as well. But be careful on the magnesium intake as too much introducing too much magnesium into your system too quickly can definitely have you making a few extra bathroom stops if you catch my drift there. Trust me, I have experimented with that. We're good now, but I had to learn the hard way that you just can't just go from basically zero to 100 with your magnesium intake. <laughs> but it's part of the life of being an one experimenter, right? Now, with K2, though, um, you can't, it can't be measured directly to the best of my knowledge as of right now. I believe you can measure it indirectly through osteocalcin levels, but uh, nothing direct as there's no commercially available tool yet to measure K2, but just for those who are interested in that. So the second one here is your blood sugar. Once again, you're like, okay, we, we know about blood sugar. and But specifically, hemoglobin A1C. And so higher blood sugar, what it's promoting accelerated rates of aging. And in general, overall lower levels of health. So this makes losing body fat more difficult. Insulin, which is a word that we've probably all heard of, it's a hormone that regulates the amount of glucose, or, or you can say sugar, in your blood. And insulin resistance simply means that your body requires greater amounts of insulin in order to drive down these blood sugar levels. So think of insulin as opening up the gates of your cells to take in the glucose from the meals that you eat throughout the day. But when it's not responsive, those sugars are going to circulate in your blood longer. And this is what causes damage to your body. Now, sugar... This can form what you call sugar crosslinks. And another word for this is AGEs, which is becoming more of a common word that's becoming a little more mainstream now, I think. That stands for advanced glycation end products, which is actually one of the another hallmark of aging now. And this crosslinks or glues proteins together like your elastin and collagen. And so simply put, this cross-linking here is going to make tissue stiffer, and this is going to contribute to higher blood pressure and wrinkling, amongst other things. So I want to quickly brush up on the other two parts when it comes to a complete blood sugar outlook before I, I touch on heme A1C. 
So the first one is probably the most familiar to everyone. That is your fasting blood glucose sugar test. This simply shows your current glucose levels at a higher than normal fasting blood glucose could be a sign of an unhealthy metabolism, but it's far from the complete picture. You know, typical ranges, when you look at the literature, it will say that anything less than 100 milligrams per deciliter is good for anyone that isn't diabetic. Now, I disagree with that number vehemently. I think 100 is a terrible number for, for, for people to have as a benchmark. These are non-diabetics specifically. I, I, you know, a more ideal range is probably below 90 with your fasting glucose. And, you know, in a perfect world, I believe most people should, could definitely be below 85. But as always, as I'm giving these numbers in this episode, consult with your licensed medical professional. I'm not a doctor. I do not play one on TV, nor do I ever want to. So most panels will include a fasting blood glucose. And if you're lucky, you should have fasting insulin on there as well. Fasting insulin measures the, um, the level of insulin in your blood. It's a measure of insulin resistance. The lower the fasting insulin levels, the better, obviously. Now, I found a study that I think I probably mentioned a long time ago. It's, it appeared in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And in this study, it suggested that a steady increase each time in fasting insulin resulted in a 25% increase in the risk of hypertension and a 16% increase in the risk of CHD. So the actual numbers um, in increments was seven micro international units per milliliter. And I wanted to be as specifically and uh, specific as possible there because I, it may be shared differently with labs and internationally and everything. So, but Generally speaking, when you get these labs back, they're going to have a reference range around 3 to 24. And it's kind of a huge range if you think about it. That is ginormous. <laughs> it's it's crazy. 3 to 24, that, that's a huge range. But for most for most people and what I recommend for, for you, um, a good target to aim for is to have a fasting insulin less than 5. And for heme A1C, why HEMA1C is so important is that it's a measure for glycation. The more glycation you have, the faster your body ages and the higher the risk of aging-related diseases. Or you can call them situations, as I sometimes call them when I want to be more um, eloquent with my verbiage. So HEMA1C is a marker that measures your average blood glucose levels over the last three months which is clearly much more beneficial and much more of a comprehensive screening for how your body has been performing compared to just the last eight plus hours in the case of a fasting glucose test as they tell you to fast uh, you know, and don't eat food past midnight. This is much more one day at best and three months, huge difference. So numbers that I would recommend for A1C is less than 5.5 just for a little balance, and you can even go for further optimization at 5.3. This might be a little difficult for some people, depending on your genetics for, um, depending on your um, insulin genetics and, and those kind of things. So for me, I have to be pretty diligent to uh, get below, to, to get 
my number's really low with that. And so off the top of my head, one of the best supplements that you can use if you have everything else in check is berberine. It is, it is a very, very good, um, supplement and it has, it does more than just the blood sugar, but that's what it's known for. But it's probably my top 10 list is a berberine and, uh, dihydroberberine is an even better form. If, um, if you see those out there, because there's two different forms. Now, a study published in the International Journal of Preventative Medicine found that the A1C test is a much more accurate predictor for future blood sugar dysregularities or issues, along with potentially being a better predictor of stroke, heart disease, and all-cause mortality. Once again, stacking the conditions in our favor and giving us a early check engine sign if something's wrong with our vehicle vehicle in this case is our human body so the third one here is ferritin and iron's another overlooked area i know we've we've heard of it before but you know i read a book on iron and i was like wow i was blown away by so many things around it that i I just didn't know i didn't even learn this in school now, a brief primer of what ferritin is, is it's a blood protein that contains iron. And your ferritin test simply gives you an idea of how much iron your body stores. Doctors typically will not order the ferritin test unless there is a case of suspected iron deficiency or iron overload. So you'll most likely have to ask for this. And if that's the issue, there's plenty of, of services now that you can um, order ferritin test. And if that fails, then just email me and then I, I can help you with that. But there's a lot that can be said on iron. It's deeply connected to aging and that could be its own episode. And so uh, I'm just going to give a high level overview here. And, you know, with iron as well, this some people think that this may be one of the reasons that men die sooner than women is due to iron. So that's another um, tidbit there. So a ferritin test is important, but it's also important to know your hemoglobin numbers. Hemoglobin is part of the CBC panel, which stands for complete blood count. CBC is typically ordered on any checkup or annual exam, so you'll be fine there. So the iron deficiency is a thing, and um, it's pretty common. Iron overload is also a big thing, especially for men and also women after menopause or after un- undergoing a hysterectomy. So iron accumulates with aging and it's associated with so many age-related diseases. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this could be one of the reasons why men die earlier compared to women. And also men, some of us, maybe we we live harder lives as men and maybe we're a little more risk-taking and all that good stuff. But, um, as far as the numbers, it's 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 going to be very person specific. And once again, definitely with this, speak with whoever your health provider is or whoever is working with you um, with your health. But you can say though that a very high level of ferritin is from 300 nanograms per milliliter to 1,000. That's once again, that's a large range. And the higher the number, obviously, the more interventions that's going to be needed. But here's the cool thing with iron, and one of the things that I am taking advantage of, but I have to do it very strategically because I have to 
keep it in alignment with uh, the, my training schedule. And if I have any uh, particular events or important things that I'm training for at the moment. And that is to help remove iron from yourself. It's just blood donations. So I'm speaking from a man perspective here. You know, obviously, because men and women are different. They're very different. I know sometimes I see in the world now where I see some kind of crazy statements with genders and things like that. But that's a whole nother conversation that I will probably take me down a whole nother diatribe. So we're just going to stick to blood donation and iron right now. So blood donations, they're important for men. And it's an excellent way to get iron out of our system. Your performance might suffer a little bit for like a week or two after maybe a little longer. I don't remember off the top of my head in terms of, but you know, blood donations are, are men don't bleed every month. So this is why the occasional donation is beneficial. Now the typical human has a blood volume of about five liters. And so a, a typical donation is going to remove about 10% of one person's total blood supply. Hence the reason why you might have a, a, a slight drop off in performance for a little bit. So your body can replenish itself. Your red blood cells hold the hemoglobin. This typically makes up around 40 to 50% of the total blood volume in men and around 35 to 45% in women. This number is also called your hematocrit. So this is part of your complete blood count. And the remaining blood volume is known as your plasma. There's also a thing for plasma donation. Now, as far as the recommended number, after reading a book on iron and doing a little digging, there isn't an exact number really, but it seems that individuals who have ferritin levels above 100 would probably want to work on that. So for simplicity's sake, I would say keep your numbers below triple digits. But also don't just focus on getting the number as low as possible because someone can become iron deficient or anemic. Number four here is GGT. And this is a very fun word to say, gamma glutamyl transpeptidase. It's a very cool word. So this is an enzyme that doctors often use to assess your liver function. And, and the reason why they do this is for alcoholism. And it's not a part of your, your comprehensive metabolic panel. Now, an interesting note, as I was going throughout the internet and some papers and stuff, the life insurance industry uses GTT as a marker on the prediction of chronic conditions. The big reason, obviously, is alcohol abuse and other drinking behaviors. This makes total sense. But to dive deeper into GGT, high levels of iron or ferritin can cause an elevation of GGT. So this is something to keep in mind. This is why this is this is where once again we talk about one of my favorite things: keeping a systems mentality when it comes to looking at your health. So there's even more to GGT than this. More and more evidence is coming out that is showing a link between high GGT levels and inflammation and oxidative stress. Now, as for ideal levels, from what I read and what I'm seeing, less than 16 units per liter is recommended for men and less than 10 units per liter is recommended for women. Now, a few things that can help your GGT levels if they're high from oxidative stress is ubiquinol. Ubiquinol is the reduced form of coenzyme Q10. Simply put, CoQ10. So they're both sold in the market. I typically would go for the ubiquinol 
but that can be up to you. Um, as I, I don't like to, to have any absolutes. I'm just saying that's what I order. Now, vitamin D along with omega-3s can help as well. I would also add glutathione here as well. But if you go this route, definitely use a topical form with your glutathione. And, you know, that's what I use and I've had great results with. Now, for the last one here is HSCRP. CRP is for C-reactive protein. The HS stands for high sensitivity. So this is a general screen for inflammation. And also, when you do this test, and really any type of blood work, do it before you exercise. Because after lifting, running, or any sort of training, your insulin levels and many other factors, including your C-reactive protein here, they're going to go up. And also, if you're a little under the weather or you're just recovering from something, this can also throw off your numbers a little bit. So as to what CRP is, what is this? It's a, it's a protein that will fight bacteria. It's a protein that fights viruses and other foreign invaders that try to, that try to, to invade your body. And these also increase the response to any sort of infection that you get. So throw in chronic and uncontrolled stress here as well because those things can definitely um, affect the human system as well. Being overweight, having high blood pressure, blood sugar issues, smoking, little to no exercise, these all can increase in number. And obviously, having a poor diet, that's a, that should be obvious, but it must be mentioned as well that your diet can very much throw off a lot of these lab numbers. So CRP is also used as part of your overall predictor when it comes to heart health and potential future issues. As far as recommended range, the lower the better from what I've read. 0.2 would be perfect, but normal, as I say in quotations if you're not watching this, is anything lower than 0.8. But once again, the human body is a system and... None of these things could be viewed in a silo. So everything needs to be taken into account to form a more comprehensive view of your health and where you stand. The last point here is that low vitamin D levels, once again, is important because low vitamin D levels can be reflected on someone who is highly inflamed, which can once again be a reflection on this CRP test. So all of these things are connected and this is how most things are in the human body is it's all a system it's all connected so as we wrap this episode up keep these numbers in mind and next time you go get your lab tests check these out as well i know there's some common ones but this is going to add on there because there's different stages there's different levels to this health thing, as I call it. You know, there's general health, which is you just want to feel good and get by. Then there's a level of, I want to be optimized. I want optimal health. But then there's another stage. This is the stage that many people do not even think about or even know it exists or even want to put the effort in. But I believe more. I believe the stage is going to become much more popular in the coming years. This is the stage of enhancement. You want to enhance your health, transcend your health, your fitness. 
this is different. That's a level that requires a certain type of mindset. But then again, if you're a person who thinks that driving at 100 should be the norm, you listen to this podcast, you're probably one of those people. A little crazy, a little rebellious. You're probably one of those people. So as I close out this episode, thank you for joining me again. Any questions, any inquiries in terms of joining the concierge practice as a client and seeing the different options, I do offer complimentary 30-minute conversations. You can reach out at executivehealth.io forward slash contact. And until next time, stay awesome, be limitless, and as always, go be the CEO of your health and your life. Peace.